We've been told to not point the mics at each other, or you will be unhappy. Um, so I'm just going to read a tiny bit from the book, and then Kima is going to lead us in a discussion of some of the topics in the book. So this is from an essay that I wrote called The Best Work in Literature. In the Basement. I began as a stock girl at 11 years old. My job was to run up and down the stairs to the basement of my grandmother's upscale houseware store and fetch customer purchases. Sets of wine glasses and unassembled wire drawer units, mostly. Every summer weekend of 1987, I carried outgoing boxes up the stairs and newly arrived UPS boxes down. Between laps, I flattened and bundled cardboard, tallied inventory on a clipboard, and filed purchase orders. I worked hard, but nepotism had its privileges. I was paid five bucks an hour in cash under the table, which was a fortune for a kid, and on par with what the grown-up clerks were making. California minimum wage at the time was $3.35 an hour. Even then, I viewed my summer gig as work I would one day leave behind. When I grew up, I was certain I would become an artist of some sort, full-time. I cycled through the dream jobs of ballerina, actor, rock star, and finally writer. While I was working in the basement, I visualized my future artist life. I would have a post-industrial living space with high ceilings in a large city. I'd share it with a cat and a partner, both of whom would adore me, but value my independent spirit and leave me alone to work. My work would be popular, yet retain its authenticity. There would be cocktail parties and ceiling-to-floor bookshelves. Above all, I would never have to flatten cardboard boxes again. My family store was housed in a grand 1910 sandstone building, which was formerly a bank. The basement was cool and dark. It smelled like damp cement and styrofoam. But to me, it was the shadowy secret headquarters of capital. My grandparents had repurposed the old bank vault as their office, and its original meter-thick door was permanently propped open, like a steel monument to the place's past as a retailer of money. When I delivered my packing slips to the manager, I could see an intricate interior system of old locks and gears in the door's cross-section. Prior to working at the store, I had been enchanted by the mechanics of the cash register, by its percussive flashes of bells, its sliding parts, and coins. But in the basement, I realized the sales floor operations were a facade. The real work of business was happening downstairs. The basement was both the physical and fiscal seat of power in the store. This was where the money lived, in the heavy, in the heavy lifting that made those wine glasses shine, and even deeper, behind a steel door as thick as I was tall. I wondered then if everything I knew and experienced might have a similar duplicity, another thing, a working and sweating mechanism beneath the surface. In the business of literature, the people who mind the store, from writers to editors to tumblers, often have other jobs too. For writers and other creators of culture, the day job, a means of income for an artist that is not the production of her art, leaving the definition of art aside for the moment. The day job is viewed as a temporary step on the ladder to artistic success. Many young writers hold the conviction that a day will come when they don't have to do anything but write. When we speak about our work with a capital W, we mean our writing. We treat this work with reverence, and we hold it up as the work that makes us who we are, artists. 
But beneath the surface of our art is a life often spent doing other work. Basement shifts, rent gigs, publicity, adjunct positions whose earnings shore up our literary work. Day jobs are a mechanism beneath the business of literature. As such, they don't just pay our bills, they're what we do with most of our lives. But why are writers so eager to work, leave work behind? Is there value to be jo- found in a day job beyond the paycheck? In high school, I scored a legit job at the local used book and record store. There, I still had to flatten cardboard, but I also shelved pocketbooks, sci-fi, fiction, mystery, and westerns in their delineated sections on the basement level of the store. I got my hands then on the work of Flannery O'Connor, Emily Dickinson, Joan Didion, and Anais Nin, and the fantasy of leaving behind my day job grew. I could see so many potential iterations of myself as a successful writer. I might be a sensitive introvert, composing my work in a window seat while watching the light fall all day long, the cultural critic, always traveling and observing, a notebook and chic sunglasses, my most constant companions, or the continental sensation breaking literary hearts with every breathless epistolary I pen. Regardless of the details, I was certain I would soon be illuminating the human condition with impeccable prose while living a life far removed from the drudgery of regular work. I was 16 and about to graduate from high school by the time a coworker asked me, so what are you going to do now? I'd soon be leaving to attend college back east, but I already had larger ambitions, and I had recently added Kerouac to my roster of role models, for better or worse. I don't know, I said, maybe drop out of college and move to New York, become a famous writer by the age of 21. My coworker, who was a bookseller with two kids, a man who has read and understood all of Proust, Finnegan's Wake, and John Fahey's liner notes, an agreeable clerk who was kind and sincere with even the most hostile customer, rolled his eyes. He handed me a stack of paperbacks and said, yeah, right, don't quit your day job, kid. <laughs> so I... <laughs> I just wanted to intro with that because that um, is sort of where I began to be fascinated by this topic a very long time ago, and that's sort of what led to creating this book eventually. Um, And from there, um, I wanted to invite some of these amazing real working writers um, (laughs) to talk about the topic of Scratch, which is writer's money and the art of making a living. Kima, also a real working writer, is going to lead us in discussion because she asks brilliant questions. I try. Um, I first want to actually start out asking why um, you came up with the Tumblr Who Pays Writers. Oh, yeah. Why was that important to you? Because so for those who don't know, there's Tumblr Who Pays Writers, and that and that evolved into the book that you will later buy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and so this actually started as a digital project. Yeah. Um, and then once you're done answering that question, I also want to ask the um, panelists um, if you can just talk about your decision to. Um, contribute to this anthology, right? Because it's still very, very taboo to talk about money, especially as women. And so was there any shame or worry about your essay? Um, so we'll start and we'll go down. Yeah, um, so I started a blog called Who Pays Writers that's just a crowdsourced list of what publications have paid to freelance writers. Um, and people write in and tell me, and then I just post it anonymously so people don't have to have their names out there. Um, 
And I started it purely out of self-interest. <laughs> um, I was freelancing full-time. This was in 2012. Um, and I was also spending a lot of time wasting time on social media. Um, and I had this experience, and I, w- I was just starting to write for, for online publications sort of for the first time. Um, and I had this experience where I pitched a book review to a publication, um, and they were like, great, we love it, we'll take it. And I was like, great, what, how much do you pay? And they were like, oh, we don't pay. And I was like, oh, I wish I'd known that before I spent all this energy crafting this pitch for you. Um, And so I was talking about this experience with some other authors and writers and journalists on Twitter. um, And I sort of flippantly said, like, all right, do we need a list? And everyone was like, yeah, we need a list. Um, So I popped off Twitter, and I went on Tumblr, and I wrote whopays.tumblr.com. And I just said, okay, people, send me your rates, and I'll just post them. And from there, it evolved into a larger site, and then I actually took it off Tumblr, and it's now its own website. Um, And people are still reporting rates, and I'm also collecting information like how long it took people to get their paycheck. Um, That's a popular one. and that sort of thing. So although it was sort of like I wanted that info and that's why I started doing it, I was aware that there was a lack of discussion like this among writers, particularly freelancers, um, about sort of the standard, the pay standards and the job standards of what it's like to be a writer and like how much do places pay? How does that even work? Do you negotiate? When do you bring it up? Um, This appears to be sort of shrouded in mystery for some reason when I think in many other non, particularly non-creative professions, I guess, um, people sort of have some idea of what they might make starting out. Um, and in a lot of creative professions and a lot of independent contract work, people don't have that idea. Um, so I was aware that that was, that was a gap that I saw, and I thought it seemed kind of simple to fill just by asking one question. Cool. Um, Julia, do you want to talk a little bit about um, your decision to uh, participate in the anthology? Um, sure. I, you know, well, I basically say yes to almost everything. <laughs> you know, as long as I can do it in my house. Um, and I, I think, you know, even though I did, you know, get an MFA in creative writing a long time ago, um, I'm only recently published, so it took me a long... I had a big gap where actually I wasn't even writing because I was working so many different adjunct jobs and raising the Sack of Street Writers Workshop. So I'm really open about talking about money just because, you know, I don't make that much of it writing. So I just kind of assume everyone knows that, and now I've blown my chance to sound cool. But, um... You know, I was really excited to be asked because it was just an honor, so I immediately said yes. And um, and I think for me, too, that I, I came to publishing with such low expectations because I really just wanted a book to be published. I just, you know... And I also really needed to prove to myself that I could finish a book after having had a rejection early on post-MFA and my book didn't get published and I was only 24 and it was, you know, it, it, it really, um, it, it, it affected me in, in, men, in very irrational ways and um, it was hard to get over. So 
you know, for me, writing about writing always has, you know, often has a lot to do with, I guess, money, but also class and also the fact that I come from people who don't read. And um, I didn't know you could be a writer, you know, and, and actually, you know, not even just make a living, but be paid until I got, I was lucky enough to get into Iowa. And then I was surrounded by people who had wanted to be paid writers since they were like in kindergarten. Right. So, um, so the, the essay that I wrote is about just sort of, I guess, I don't know if I would call it lucking upon books, but um, when my family moved into this new house when I was a child, the person who had lived there before us, who actually committed suicide, left thousands of books in the basement, and they were like everything from like Psycho to The Joy of Sex to like Clan of the Cave Bear to like classics. And so that was like this amazing... Um, but then when I went to uh, my MF, the MFA program at Iowa, I realized that I hadn't I hadn't been reading the Check right off. books. Check yes, off. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think I might have read Chekhov in high school though, and I was like, "This is good," um, but not as good as Psycho. Right, obviously. And um, so I think for me it was a you know. I started buying so many different books by contemporary authors and as a way to sort of make myself feel like a real writer. And I may have spent some of my loan money on those books. And um, so it was a really amazing experience to write the essay. And then I had to have such a wonderful editor who really, you know, actually edited it. <laughs> and um, I learned a lot from the process. Wonderful. Susan? Um, well, my contribution was an interview, and it it's kind of an irresistible topic, um, writing in money. In fact, I even love just saying it, because, um, you know, they seem to be so contradictory, and in fact, of course, that's absurd. Um, I think writing should and can be a profession and there's something important about viewing yourself very seriously as a professional writer and and treat yourself that way um at the same time i'm a little private about specific details of my own financial life so that's where um i felt a little inhibited about naming dollar amounts and I don't think that's absolutely necessary to make the conversation interesting. My situation is a little different because I write nonfiction and there is a very big difference between writing nonfiction and wanting to do it professionally and writing fiction. There nonfiction is a commodity. There are institutions that need to be filled with nonfiction writing. Fiction doesn't have that um, presence in the culture, so it's a little easier for a pe- person doing nonfiction to do that full-time and right. not have a side job. I've never had a side job. I 
waited tables right when I got out of college, and then I started working as a writer, and I've, that's all I've ever done. Um, so I like to my think of myself as being utterly unemployable because <laughs> I've never done anything. All she can do is and write. I'm a good. No, I'm a very good typist. I'm a very good typist, but I've never done anything else, and. There are two reasons for that. One, as I said, there is an, an, a marketplace for nonfiction writing. And then within that marketplace, if you see yourself as an artist, you have to work toward being able to do that kind of work within right. the world of nonfiction. Um, so it's not, it's not so easy, but there is a thriving, active market for it. Um, and secondly, I always believed, um, really I take all of my life lessons from the Vikings, which was that when they landed somewhere that they wanted to um, conquer, they would burn their ships so they had no option. <laughs> Just, we're staying and we're going to make it work. And when I first got out of uh, college, my father really pressured me to go to law school, and he kept saying to me, it'll give you something to fall back on. And I said, number one, I don't plan on falling back. And number two, what I didn't say is, I don't want something to fall back on. Right. I want to feel the urgency of wanting to do this. I know I mentioned to Mangela in our conversation um, my realization about needing to be smart as a business person at the same time believing in my, my aspirations as an artist were when I was working at the Boston Phoenix and through some accident, you know, of course, the Phoenix, like everywhere else, nobody knows what anybody's getting paid. And I'd been hired at the same time as another writer. And I don't remember how I found out, but I found out what he was getting paid. He, not, not a surprise. What he was getting paid. On that <laughs> aspect of it. But he was being paid considerably more than I was. And I went completely ballistic um, and I went into the editor and actually to be honest with you wasn't about sexism it was I was really I thought I'm better than he is and I'm being paid less and also the fact that I I I didn't know except accidentally I found out and we can get into that later but you know most places don't post people's salaries. So anyway, I went into the editor and I just, he admitted, yes, this guy was being paid more than me. And I said, why? He said, he, he made a better deal than you did. Mm. <laughs> and I thought, okay, fair enough, but I will never do that again. And I said, well, guess what, I quit, and if you would like to hire me again, <laughs> you've got my number, and I quit. And, I mean, honestly, I did this rashly. I, I, you know, it was kind of crazy and impulsive, but looking back, I think, wow, that was really genius, because then they came back to me, and they said... Wow we want you to come back and I said okay good well I let's talk money that's right <laughs> um, and I negotiated a better deal but it's just it's a you know you're busy worrying about 
being a good writer. And a lot of people I know, and I include myself in that case, and I've gotten very wise, are really terrible business people. And being good at the business of being a writer actually helps you in the business of being an artist. Um, so the, the, the sense that these are contrarian notions is quite wrong, I think. And along the way, I've... I've had help from people who have been very smart, a good agent, um, having the moxie, as in that situation, uh, just possessed by the devil, I guess, and said, you know, fuck you, I'm quitting. Um, and I'll just tell one more funny story, because it's just a, another example of how how funny it is that this profession doesn't actually operate as a profession. Um, when I started at The New Yorker, and of course I was utterly beside myself with excitement to be at The New Yorker, I was being given my first assignment. And at that point I'd worked for a lot of magazines and it seemed appropriate to ask a couple of basic questions. I said, when is the deadline? And my editor looked at me, he was very puzzled, and he said, when will you be done? And I said, uh, he said, we don't give deadlines. I said, please, give me a deadline. I don't not want a deadline. He said, what would you like to have as your deadline? And I said, July 3rd. He said, okay, your deadline is July 3rd. And then I said, and mustering all the courage I could, because nobody likes to do this, I said, what will I be paid the fact is, I would have paid the New Yorker to let me of write. Of course, but for the byline. He, pay for that he byline. looked at me again, very puzzled, and said, it will be sufficient. <laughs> <laughs> is This was in a, an era where nobody at the New Yorker talked about money, and the idea that I was actually asking what I would be paid was startling. Mm. And the fact is, they paid well, so it was simply not to be discussed. And it's not like that anymore. You actually get a deadline. You actually know what you're going to get paid. But it was um, it was just a, a, a very interesting reminder that it's been an, a bumpy road to look at this as a profession that has certain, that people can live doing it as opposed to, being a hobbyist, or being a rich person who does it on the side. Right, right. Harmony? Yes. So um, my contribution was an essay on the poet Amiri Baraka and his um, tax issues toward the end of his life and how he kind of had to lean on his everything, and so he would get free books and sell them um, on 125th, like when he was in his 70s. Um, so yeah, if there's no place for not our fiction, then there's definitely less of a place for poetry. Yes. So um, it's my background, my father was a soul musician. He was a northern soul musician um, born in the Mississippi Delta, and he um, pretty much was a sharecropper. So he got an education until about 12, did some sharecropping, um, left the land and went to New Orleans and got signed with a small uh, northern soul label called Minute Records and he was basically illiterate so he couldn't read but he was a songwriter and he wrote songs for Ray Charles, wrote, um, composed however he got it down a lot of times a woman he was with including my mom would write down 
the music for him. My mom was an upper middle class woman from Chicago, so he would kind of, that's how class sort of operated in his um, ability to rise up. And so that was sort of what I, my influence, even though he passed away when I was pretty young, I watched this, you know, I watched him at the piano all day and all night making music that my mom was writing down and making money doing that, but at the same time having no education and being kind of scared and he was actually you know he would carry guns and he would uh, threaten studio engineers who were going to rip him off because he was always afraid of you know not getting his money and so early on I saw that and I saw how he I understood things about music publishing and royalties and things like that that when I then ended up going to Columbia to get an MFA, I already kind of had a handle on this idea that not only do you need to be doing other things to make a living as a person who's writing any hybrid of poetry, but you need to be, uh, you know, fiercely shrewd and aware of what you are doing and the moves that you make and things like that. But at the end of the day, what frustrated me so much about the poetry community and still does is that it's become this thing where it kind of is an annex of academia and that's I also work a lot with jazz and music and those things have gone hand in hand so these griot cultures have then turned back and become you know kind of appropriated I guess by western academics and that sort of clips what the African poetic traditions can actually operate and do and so I thought it was a pretty beautiful story that you have Amiri who was also western educated griot poet especially you know when Malcolm died he left everything in the Lower East Side Arts Movement and moved up to Harlem and became militant and changed his whole approach but there's this interesting history of having the cultural capital of both sides and what that causes you to do as a, um, I think as a black writer, because I'm concerned, with, and as a poet especially, when you're working in a tradition where you are sort of expected to go into academia. So when my first book, my thesis was published as a book pretty easily, and I, you know, for poetry you win like a small award, or you get some acknowledgement, but the idea is you publish, hopefully you get a university job. But I always knew that I didn't want that to be my goal because it would kind of inhibit the way that I approach publishing and so so yeah those are the things I'm thinking about and writing about. <laughs> Can I add something about academia? Sure of course. Um, I think uh, I think also the fact that microphone. Went, oh sorry microphone. I should miss this opportunity. Um, I, um, I think that you know this isn't a fully formed thought but I do think that it's a little different now in, in graduate programs for writing. I do think there's a little bit more talk of how to make, you know, actually promoting your work. But I got my MFA in 2002, and there was just absolutely no talk about money, except, you know, like whispers of who was getting big two book deals and and I think that that really that there's a lot of writers because there has been this big MFA boom and writing has become you know um, a business or the, the you know the teaching of writing and all the money that MFA programs are making because a lot of them are very ex you know expensive but um but there isn't this willingness again. It's like this avoidance of talking, particularly with fiction and poetry. Um, and so I think for me that it almost gave me the expectation, and also it was difficult for me to give myself the permission to believe that I could 
make money as a writer or, you know, um, no, no, it's very interesting. I feel like the academic connection is definitely silencing some of the talk about money and writing as a business. Right. So I actually want to talk about that, right? So the the MFA usually costs, you know, about $40,000, right? So it's $40,000 spent to learn about the craft, of, you know, looking at narrative distance for $40,000. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm really interested um, for the panelists who did decide to go through with the MFA. I'm currently in an MFA program that's low res, um, and we actually don't do any of the business stuff, right? There's no time. You're on campus for 10 days the rest of the semester. Um, you're in an email with your faculty supervisor. And so um, this is a two, two-part question because you brought up class earlier. Um, I'm very interested to know from all of you your feelings on internships as a way into publishing, right? Because most folks in publishing got in the door through an internship, right? And the ability to work for free is a privileged position, right? I would have loved to do an internship when I was an undergrad and possible I had to work at Walgreens, pay less wherever else to feed myself while I was at Vassar. There was no internship and a lot of the internships are unpaid. And so then my question is, one, <laughs> how do we feel about that specific entry point and working and working for free as a way um, into the door for, you know, a, a job that might be $27,000 starting. Um, and then also, um, when we discuss the MFA model, whether you have one or not, what do you feel about investing $40,000? Can I ask you a question? Sure. When you're talking about getting a job in publishing, you mean at a publisher? Or at a publishing house. As an editor? or As an, as an editorial assistant, oh. publicity assistant, any of those jobs, you're, you know. That, that starts as an internship. I mean, the, one of the reasons that I'm going to sound so, I mean, I was very ignorant because I did not, you know, I went, my my parents really wanted me to be a lawyer, you know, very like, you know, an immigrant sort of dream for their children to be lawyers, and my brother was supposed to be a doctor. And um, Neither one of you did either. No, my oh. brother works in, <laughs> he makes money though, it's like a startup. Um, I know. <laughs> so, um, so like a banking kind of thing, right. but, um, but I think my parents are, they're not here, thank goodness. But, uh, you know, they were very proud when I became a adjunct professor, even though I was making $10,000 a year, because they could call me Professor Essa, like, you know, it was very a big deal, and they called Italy and told everybody, and, um, but I do think that, um, I just lost my train of thought, I, I applied for a job for an internship in Boston, was it paid or paid? It was paid, but it was okay. like sixteen thousand dollars a year. This was two thousand. Poorly, poorly paid, underpaid. And I was so ignorant. I was just like, "What? I don't understand." Then I was like, "Well, I guess I'll have to go to graduate school." And this MFA thing sounds pretty easy. And um, and actually, at Iowa, almost you know, it's it's full funding. Right. Right. So I, you know, I didn't pay, um, and I had a a teaching. Um, assistantship, which was amazing, and I got paid more there than I would ever get paid to teach anywhere else. And actually, at Yi Yoon Lee's interview, yeah. right, she talked about how that how she and her husband lived uh, in the book, 
lived on that stipend, which was a lot of money, you know, to be paid for only teaching one class or two classes a semester. Um, so I actually didn't pay, you know, that much, but I, but, but I know a lot of young writers who are, who are going into massive debt for MFA degrees, um, especially if you want to live in a city. Right. And if, and you know, not everyone can just pick up and leave their family or career or, um, so I think, you know, there's, there's a big worry about sort of the sustainability of, of, you know, artists, writers in the future and how to make a living without, um, and I also think that, you know, it goes back to also diversity in publishing, right? Um, only certain people can afford to live in New York City and or make to work for free thirty thousand dollars a year. You know, right? Um, well, I did not get an MFA, and um, and I've spoken at many commencements of uh, MFA and journalism programs, and I. And also undergraduate pro programs, and I inveigh against the MFA, and it's a little bit like an Amway scheme, which is, you know, it's a way, it's sort of a, a full employment program for writers, because you are you make a lot of writers so that they can teach more writers so they can be paid. And there is something a little insane about it. Um, and uh, there, again, there is a difference between nonfiction and fiction. And poetry. Um, and certainly in poetry. I certainly advised people for years and years that if they wanted to be doing nonfiction writing, they absolutely should not go to graduate school. I thought it was an enormous waste of money when they could they could go to a small town and get a job at a newspaper and get better practice as a writer and have the real weight of being published and being in the real world. Um, that an MFA or a journalism program did not allow and that you were still in the bubble of academia and it didn't seem helpful. Mm -hmm. At the time I gave this advice and I, you know, really I had a lot of professors who had invited me to speak to their classes looking like, <laughs> you know, I'd be saying, don't go to MFA programs, they're so stupid, it's such a waste of money. Um, but at that time there were more ways a young starting right. writer could work and be paid. Now, my first job was at a tiny, tiny little magazine in Portland, Oregon, and I got $400 a month, but I could live on it. I couldn't live on $400 a month. Um, and I had zero experience. I came to my interview with my high school yearbook <laughs> as my portfolio. And I just said, look, I really want this job. And I got hired. There's an entire layer of publications that don't exist anymore right. that used to be basically the minor leagues for writers. Right. Um, and it's not only that you got paid, it's really different to write in the real world and to get out of the, the cosseted environment of academia. 
now I, I've had to tailor my advice to people because I still believe that's a better way to do it, which is just do it. Just be out there and do it. If you want to write fiction, find a writer's group, find a writing community, but do it and don't spend years sort of spinning your wheels in, in this private little world. But things have changed. Um, it's a lot harder to get those entry-level jobs where, wherever they may be, uh, whether it's in publishing because you want to learn editing or at a little paper. So I've, I've had to um, kind of modify that advice. Yeah. I, I don't think it's necessarily the the worst choice and i used to feel so strongly about it and and now i feel like we're in a new world and a new economic world certainly in terms of publishing a, a new world where that big broad entry level um platform is isn't really there anymore yeah so i now when young people ask me, I'm really torn about what to suggest to them. And, you know, I used to feel like I knew 100%, just throw a dart at a map, go there, get a job at the paper, throw yourself in, burn your ship, and become a writer. Not so easy. You throw a dart, you go to the town... They don't have a newspaper. They don't have an alternative news weekly. They don't have a, a little local arts mag. You know, those things don't necessarily exist. So it's difficult. Yeah. Harmony? Yeah. Um, well, with poetry, again, it's kind of the anomaly. There are no entry level jobs for poet. Um, so <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> I mean, songwriter maybe, but you know, it's a whole different arena. Oh, so, greeting card. Actually, someone I greeting, know. Yeah, there's that. Just told me that he had worked <laughs> um, at Hallmark yeah. or American Greetings yeah. for years, and I thought, oh my god, that's amazing. Yeah, that's things like that come to mind. I would read the backs of like herbal. Rem- I'd be like, I could write this. Yeah, <laughs> like vitamin water and shit. Yeah. But no, no one wants to really. You know, it's like you might as well spend forty thousand dollars or eighty. Um, <laughs> to avoid those things, maybe. But at the end of the day, then you're stuck back in the loop of the goal, you know, for poets who go to MFAs to hopefully get a teaching job. And now that whole, because of the loop, it's changed where all the teaching jobs are adjunct and it's just an insult to your intelligence to think that you're going to make a real living doing that. So looking to examples of people like Amiri, what I notice is that people ended up doing their own things and scrapping and starting publications and some of the most productive and well-paid until they maybe got into tax trouble. Uh, Poets usually were starting their own businesses or taking that sense of risk that comes with even saying you want to be a poet and, you know, starting record companies and uh, magazines and, you know, somehow making it work outside of the greater economy um, kind of relying on the miraculous a little bit and then at the same time having a practical element where they knew how to put a line in the system and work um, the NEA and different things like that so well there might not be any NEA yeah yeah but and now well I think the great thing about 
being a poet or a fiction writer or even a nonfiction writer at a time like this is you really have nothing to lose because they're burning our ships yeah. for us. Right. <laughs> so, fuck right. it, you know? Yeah. Like, what is... Um, and I think also we can think about, you know, what are we going to create to push back against the MFA system? Like, maybe we start creating awards for poets who don't have an MFA, things like that. Um, seriously, because when I've taught, and I don't teach full-time, but when I do, I'll see, like, students who aren't getting recognized or who I can tell it's not worth their time, and I'll straight up tell them they should drop out, they're wasting their money. And I don't care, like, why I'm adjuncting. I don't give a, <laughs> they're paying me a few thousand dollars. I'm not going to be loyal to the institution. So I think, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's, I think starting your own publication is a highly, uh, it's, difficult and time consuming, but I highly recommend it. If, if that's like a, a, way, a way to sort of get your feet in publishing is just to start publishing. Mm-hmm. And obviously you need some resources to, to do that. Um, if not money, then at least friends. Um, but <laughs> that is actually how this book started. Right. Um, <laughs> but that's scary, right? And that's actually... Um, Piggybacking on what Susan said, that was part of my next question, right? We have so many digital outlets, especially, that are opening and then closing within two weeks, right? Um, um, Some with, you know, there's the $50 per blog post kind of model that's happening, um, and more and less. But I'm, I'm, you know, I'm thinking, um, and this is quality aside, but Gawker, The Toast, whatever your feelings are about these digital spaces, right? They Right, and so, uh, um, and so, I'm just wondering, um, what what do we think of um, what do we think of starting our own digital magazines? Is that is that is that where the future is? Do we think that's sustainable? We see that they're closing, and especially the fact that a lot of these magazines don't review books that or don't do author interviews. The listicle has become um, king, and. <laughs> <laughs> right, so it's not necessarily writing as much as it is about um, clicks and and clickbait and clickability. Um, so, can we talk about that for a little bit? About the digital, uh, the digital, the digital literary world. Um, yeah, I mean, when I started Scratch Mag, um, I started it with eighty bucks and a WordPress theme. Um, so that was like pretty low cost in terms of what it takes to start that. However, I also worked on it about 20 hours a week for two years. Um, so I had the resources to do that because I have rent control um, in one of the most expensive cities in maybe the world now. I live in San Francisco. Um, but to your larger point about sort of like digital publications and I guess what we would call like the literary internet is yeah. that what we're calling it now. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on. I mean, first of all, I do think there's some amazing writing going on on Tumblr. There's some amazing writing going on on like people's random WordPress blogs. Um, and I think that like if you need an outlet to put your stuff out there, that's a good place to start. Just if you just want to do it. But that's um, but that's exposure, right? Then that goes back to the: Are you getting paid, or is this for exposure? Yeah, Have, and, and I would advocate doing that if you own your own domain. Like, if I want to put that on MontreMartin.com, that's great. Okay. Um, if I'm putting it on someone else's, then we're going to talk about can they pay me, etc. Um, but so I think, like, in terms of like what Susan is talking about, like the experience of just learning how to do it, right? Um, that can be very useful. That said, I do think there's sort of like a big culture online right now, sort of on Twitter and on a lot of blogs and smaller online publications where there are a lot of sort of literary people 
spending time in online spaces and it does become a bit of uh, well it, it beca- it's, it's not necessarily economically sustainable <laughs> um, like you just mentioned the toast right. I think that's a really great example because they actually did have um, things that weren't just listicles Does, do people know what the toast was did you say they um, they yeah, have they've been closed for about a year. Yeah, so the Toast was a, a like sort of literary, somewhat feminist blog um, that published really anything that seemed cool And they to paid them. $50 per and post. And they paid 50 bucks a post. So it was definitely a place where a lot of younger writers were getting that, quote, exposure. Right. Um, and even at $50 a post, uh, it was not financially sustainable. Um, they ran ads on the site. And one of the founders of the site, Nicole Cliff, basically was just kind of bankrolling it when they would need to pay the bills. She would pay the bills. Um, and after a couple of years, they were just like, we can't do this. Um, and the reason why they couldn't do it is because they weren't getting enough clicks because they weren't publishing those kinds of like clickbait listicles. They were publishing smarter articles. Um, and even paying people only $50 a post was still too much to be paying people. So I do think that there's like a problem with a lot of online publications and it's a and that's sort of one of the things that I think is interesting to start talking with people about sort of how much money they're making at these publications. It's kind of an emperor no clothes situation. Well, also, I think just to throw into that, the yeah. thing that's happened in the last decade or so is the pervasive notion that writing should be free. Oh, right, mm-hmm. yes. Exactly. And when you have that, uh, you know, people do not want to pay. Um, I've been involved with a number of really interesting, exciting um, writer sort of sites like Byliner. Right. And I thought, oh my God, this is a really fantastic idea. It's guaranteed slam dunk. Um, basically, Netflix for writing, with a very low subscription cost. Right. And they—I don't even know if they lasted a year. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And the problem they came up with is people in this short amount of time have gone from buying a newspaper, buying a magazine, buying a book to. It should be free. Um, and how that happened, I don't know. But I don't know if we can reverse that. And yeah. so I think you're going to see, um, except for the websites that drive a huge amount of traffic and can sell lots of ads, yeah. um, there will be a million startups. And I'm afraid unless they have a deep pocket, somebody willing just to support it, they're not going to make it. Um, Even when they do have the deep pocket, that pocket can change its mind at any given moment, right? as we've just seen with Medium. Right. I came of of age as a writer, which actually kind of just happened um, not that long ago. So the first time that I got paid was when I sold my first novel. And I'd written for some websites that didn't pay, like some of them, like the Millions, which is, you know, and the rumpus, the rumpus yes. doesn't pay. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, you know, have that expectation that I was going to get paid because I had not written, not published. I, you know, very low self-esteem. And also, you know, there's this expectation when you have a novel coming out 
you know, your publicist will be like, why don't you write some essays? And then, and of course, you know, the essays are about, like, you know, I'm obsessive-compulsive, and there was a character in my book who was obsessive-compulsive, so I wrote, like, all these, like, revealing, honest, no-filter, like, essays about being obsessive-compulsive, and a lot of people read them. It was really, you know, but they were all published unpaid in the hope that like it would drive you know and my book did well enough you know so I so I so I probably published like 10 essays around that time I was I worked really hard for that book (laughs) I was so excited to be published finally and um and then that led to some paid reviews which actually I don't like writing reviews so I was kind of like, oh, it's a lot of work, even for just that much money. But I do think that Sackett Street, even though it's not a publication, the, the workshop that I run, um, which is in New York City, we're starting. To, we're going to have some classes here very soon in in the spring, and also we just added online classes. Um, it's it. The reason that it's successful is because there was no overhead. And so what I did was, and also it came out of of a place of need, right? Like, I think that when you're writing, right, people don't decide to write because it's fun and easy and a great way to make money, right? I'm, you know, I'm writing because I don't have a choice because I'll lose my mind if I don't. My family won't want to be around me. So for starting Sackett Street, I needed to create a community, Right, I just I graduated from Iowa. Not my first book didn't get published. I was making no money as an adjunct. I just felt really lonely. I needed a haven. Right, for some people, that's starting a Tumblr, starting a you know a publication. It's a way to um, create community to sort of satisfy your need to write or to teach. For me, it was this need to talk about books. And so I put an ad on Craigslist, and um, and that was in 2002. You started a sacket on Craigslist? Yeah. <laughs> Everything was done on Craigslist then. That was 2002. And um, people came to my home, and they we workshopped in my kitchen, and now we've had over probably close to 4,000 Right, right, and now we also have Catapult, right, which is very yes. But there's startup with a conservative oh, oh, backer. I, I know. I am just yeah. myself. We also have ten <laughs> minutes before audience yeah. questions, um, and so I just want to make there are two things I definitely want to make sure that we talk about before um, we turn it over. Um, obviously, the big literary drama. I love literary drama. I love it. Um, Simon Schuster, right? I don't think we can leave here without talking about that. Um, and the idea that, um, so for everyone who just, yeah, so, yeah. you know, that bad guy whose name is Milo got $250,000 contract with Simon Schuster. He's like a um, Breitbart news Yeah, guy. he's all and right. provocateur and an extreme terrible human yeah. being. Um, um, he, um, he bullied Leslie Jones on Twitter, got banned. Um, and so a lot of uh, writers felt that Simon Schuster shouldn't take on the book. Um, they should promote hate speech. Um, and they called for the boycotting of Simon Schuster, a blanket boycotting of Simon Schuster. 
Schuster. Um, a lot of writers spoke out, myself included, and I said there can be no blanket boycott of Simon Schuster because all of the big five houses have a conservative arm, um, and that boycotting Simon Schuster would only actually hurt the other imprints at Simon Schuster. I mean, Simon Schuster has the most diverse children's roster, um, racially diverse, culturally diverse children's roster, and children's books, right? And so I just felt like it was a little bit of cutting off the nose despite the face because the man was going to get a book deal somewhere. Right. Um, and um, Roxanne Gay yesterday pulled out of her Simon Schuster contract um, okay. and uh, but also tweeted and I'm glad that she did. She said, I have the privilege to pull out of my contract. So we could just talk, let's spend our last few minutes before we turn over to the audience. Just your feelings. Um, and, and maybe a, just a quick explanation of how the imprints work. Some people think one imprint doesn't have the power to tell the other imprint at the house what to do um, at all. Um, well, I, I mean, yes. as it happens, my publisher is Simon and Schuster, and this book was. Um, and I, I was I was waiting for Mandrula to say I didn't want I didn't want to throw that in there. Yeah. And you should, yes. Um, and I will just say, you know, in brief, um, Simon and Schuster is a is a large entity with many small companies within it, and they are not in cohort with each other um, and imprints have their own budget and right. acquire their own books and that's a, an imprint that had already it publishes uh, I think um, Laura Ingram or all the terrible people yeah I mean they <laughs> all the terrible people yeah um, I think the reaction I mean I wish it hadn't been Simon and Schuster who gave him the contract um but I also think the issue of free speech is more important and of a huge concern. You can't, you can't want to not hear from the people you don't like and still believe in free speech. I think you're perfectly okay saying, it gives me the creep, so I'm going to go to a different publisher. I, I really think it's, you are signing on with exactly the kind of mentality that you you think you're resisting if you say boycott Simon and Schuster boy you know Chicago review books we're not going to review any Simon and Schuster books this year Really? Right. And so there was a big thing with Chicago Review Books, and I really got into a huge Twitter fight for those who didn't see it. Um, because my point was, this book, several of the books I'm, I'm a book publicist that I'm working on are adjustments, but are by people of color, published by Simon Schuster. These you're talking about people who got two book deals for thirty thousand dollars, right? Just on the legal fees alone, they cannot afford to walk out of a contract. Let's be real. Also, not reviewing or publicizing books by people of color is doing what for marginalized voices? Right. Except I mean, for exactly I, what you're saying you're not doing. I think it, it was a, you know, an impulse and one that I have to say, I think there's a certain amount of vanity saying, well, what the hell? We aren't going to have anything to do with Simon & Schuster. And you think, well, wait a minute. Think think this through. The what other houses have mean? conservative arms. They all yeah. do. They all and do. The fact is... 
Simon & Schuster probably makes enough money on their conservative books to give contracts to lots of people whose books will not make a penny. And they can afford to do it because they have books that sell very well. And right now, if you look at the bestseller list, a lot of them are conservative books. So, you know, I, I think it's... I think it's a foolish. You can say this guy's an asshole, and he is. You know, <laughs> don't buy his book, and um, you know, protest at his room, whatever you want. But I, I think that it's. It was just. It kind of shocked me, yeah. given that I think we should all believe first and foremost in the right to express ourselves. Um, the boycott is what shocked I, you. I, the, the fact that the knee-jerk response, I mean, yeah, I just thought, oh, geez, I cannot believe it was Simon yeah. Schuster, and, yeah. and but that happened that, the week this book came out. Um, Can you talk about the yeah, microphone? Um, so that happened the same week that Scratch came out, and Scratch is a Simon and Schuster book, and I definitely had people sort of emailing me and tweeting me and being like, how can you be promoting this book? You know, um, they're evil, you're evil. It's my book. Um, uh, <laughs> and I was like, well, it's my book, I'm in yeah. my first book. <laughs> Um, at first I do interviews and then I do events and that's how um, but um, I think I think you guys have spoken on the boycott I think I was really uh, impressed by what Roxanne did because I think let me see if I can tie this all together something I've been hearing us talk about a lot tonight is sort of like institutions whether literary or funding um, or journalistic and I think that we're in a time right now where a lot of those institutions aren't doing the things that they used to do for a variety of reasons. Um, and I think that the publishing industry is also a you know, long-standing institution. Um, and I think that at the same time, everyone was really freaked out by the Milo book deal because everyone is really freaked out right now in general. And that was just like one of those perfect timing things where it was like this guy who very much represents this power that is currently occupying the White House in our country, like, and I'm freaked out about that, so I'm going to say something and do something. And so that's like a human response, and I think that's understandable. One other thing just to yeah. throw in, purely as a factual thing, for a nonfiction book, $250,000 is not a big advance. And Truth. Was, I mean, it's not... It's well, not okay, look at it this way. For a nonfiction book, $250,000 is not a big advance. It's so, not, not for a lead And title. I just said that I have a client who... Not for a celebrity. That's amazing. Yeah. Not for a celebrity. Not for a celebrity. Yeah. He, I think it's a huge amount of money, but for a celebrity book advance, him. yeah. And, yeah. I mean, let me he should have gotten right. at least three million. <laughs> no, I think that they that is a modest advance yeah. for a celebrity. Yes. Yeah. That he's so much in the news that they will absolutely 100% get a ton of publicity about it. So yes. his sort of raving about how they just were bringing money in by the wheelbarrow, I thought, no, they were not. And, <laughs> um, it's like the crowds at my inauguration were huge. <laughs> it's the same thing. Yeah. It's not, that is not a big advance for a book by someone who's a 
provocateur and very much in the public eye. And yeah. so that kind of irritated me that people didn't call him on that. I think that's thing. a good point. That said, to an author such as myself, that is a huge advance. Yes. That did not get $250,000. And yeah, no, I got $30,000 for Scratch. Um, and at least oh, half yeah. of it went to you guys. <laughs> um, and we can talk more about that. Um, I actually have a, a an interview coming out that explains all of that, so um, you can Google it. Um, but um, but I think what Roxanne did was really sort of awesome because I think that um, first of all, as like a sort of lower tier author published by that same publisher, I understand that there's absolutely no corollary between my career and Milo What's His Face's career, but I I. It did sting sometimes to sort of see these numbers flying around and know that I'm like buying my plane ticket to LA on my credit card and like paying for my book tour myself, which is fairly common, I should add. Um, yeah. And uh, for like non lead title authors. Um, and so the, the just emotionally, yeah, that stung. I was like, it's weird to me that like, this publisher or this society or whatever you want to call it is like valuing this guy's work in this way monetarily while it's valuing our work in a far less significant way. Um, but oh, sorry, just one more thing. Um, but I think that, back to Roxanne, like, I think that she did the exact right thing, which was that she was upset by it and she has a significant amount of clout right now in the publishing business and she used it. Right. And I think that that was great and it's her prerogative to, her prerogative to do that. And I think what you said is, you know, what you mentioned is that not everyone can do that. Um, and I think that you know, everyone is really freaked out right now about sort of like our institutions, whether they be cultural or political, like crumbling or being in disarray or being just, you know, destroyed. Um, and I think that like she sets a really amazing example at, at many different scales of like if you are a person who has power in a situation with an institution and you can use that power, like please do, because a lot of other people don't have access to that kind of like platform. Totally. Julia, you want to throw something in? We have two minutes before audience questions. Um, no, well, I did want to add something um, that I meant to say earlier, which is that I am the kind of person who, um, just for any, if there's writers in the audience, I'm not going to make you raise your hands, um, but I'm the kind of person that couldn't just, not that it's a just, but I, I, if I, if my only job was to write, I would probably have a nervous breakdown. Um, I need to also do something else at the same time, actually many things. So, um, you know, I just want to put that out there that it is, you know, while I have many friends and colleagues who, um, whose, you know, their full-time jobs are as writers, um, my full-time job is as as a business person running a writing school. So, um, for me, writing, I would, you know, I don't think of it as a hobby. I think of it as a privilege because I had to build my business up to a certain point so that I could afford childcare, so that I could go back to writing. Um, so, you know, if I didn't have the business, then I wouldn't be able to afford to write, you know, the way that I want to. And I do also pay for my own tours and yeah. most of my own publicity. You know, it's really just 
Um, I think now that we live in a world where, in a in an artistic world, a literary world where community is really essential because we need other writers to reach readers, but self-reliance is just, you know, probably the most important thing because of what you said about those institutions, whether it's your publisher or your university, that's not supporting you in a way, you know, in any kind of financial way, really. Um, Maybe in a little bit, but yeah. You know, it is possible to be a writer and also an accountant. Or And I also remember Kurt Vonnegut coming to visit my MFA program. Um, and actually, there weren't that many people there who went to hear him speak, which I was shocked because at that time he was, I think, well, they were just such snobs at Iowa. And he, they were like, kind of genre, right? Meanwhile, I was like, oh, my God, Kurt Vonnegut. And he was chain smoking in like a, um, it was like a lobby of a dorm. And he told us all that we should get jobs outside of writing. And we were like, okay, we, you know, first year MFA students. But um, yeah, anyways. I mean, yeah, just briefly to wrap it up, like I think one of the amazing things about doing this project is that I've talked to all, all these different writers who basically each have their own approach. Like half the people in this book are like, never quit your day job, and half the people are like, never have a day job. And I think that's actually awesome and makes all kinds of sense. Um, Because like as all of our experience demonstrate, like I think in particularly with creative professions, like everyone is going to come at it from a different place. You're going to have different resources. Maybe you can do an internship. Maybe you can't. Maybe you take out loans to do an internship, which is what I did. Like at you took out loans to do an internship. Yeah, which directly resulted in my current job because I interned at the magazine I'm now managing editor for. But I did it as an adult because I was a returning undergraduate student because I never finished in the first place. And I was also working. So, yes, it's complicated. <laughs> like everyone, And I'm still paying those loans back to the tune of $500 a month, by the way. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, if you have the resources and if you can take the risks, do it. And if you need to not take risks, that's totally fine. Find another way. You know, I think that like it's been amazing to sort of hear all these stories from all these amazing different types of writers because everyone has a different career and everyone's career is based on like the way they come at business and class and money. And obviously like for every human that's different. Um, the important thing is to like understand when you're being exploited and when you're not being exploited and like learn to draw those boundaries for yourself. Okay, we have time. We have 10 strong minutes and that's it. Um, And I I want to insist that you ask a question. If you don't ask a question, I'm going to cut you off and ask you for your question. I'm so serious about this. It's not even funny. I'm going to cut you off. Okay? Please. please. And don't do those four-part questions either. One question per person. Please. I'm serious. I'm so serious. You have no idea. It's 847. Let's do this. Yes. I have one question for two people. I was going to interrupt you on what the Twitter was it was very simple Twitter war with Chicago review of books they said they were not going to review any books any Simon Schuster books for 2017 I told them no wrong stop next okay and uh, thank you so much for participating I've noticed the New Yorker has become such a uh, necessary Kurt Nowles is one of my favorite writers and his writing question they collect these writers now and when I was a child it was more curmudgeon um, the, the, what's changed in the New Yorker and make it so vital? 
What what has changed in New Yorker to make it so vital? The writers. Uh, well, I I guess I would disagree with the premise, um, but I also think that there's been an, a very uh, concerted effort in the last couple of years to not keep the magazine in its own um, sort of display case, but to engage very, very actively with the world and the moment. Um, and I think they've done a really great job it of it. Um, but I've spent a lot of time reading the issues from the 30s and the 40s, and I have to say they're, they're amazing. And while the, the tone might have been more removed from the, the, the kind of sturm und drang of every day, you just look at John Hersey's uh, Hiroshima, and, you know, oh, yes. that, that is not a, a curmudgeonly magazine. I mean, that's embracing, uh, you know, Silent Spring. I mean, the magazine's always really been there, and it's just these times have called on it in a, in a really urgent way, and I think they've responded. Next question? Yes. So, I know you talked about the, the sort of entry level of publications disappearing. Like, if each of you were starting over right now to be writers, what would you suggest as your first step? So if each of us were starting over as writers, what would our first steps be? Go to law school. Law school. <laughs> I mean, for, for me, even though I'm, I'm, I'm on so many MFA panels where you're talking, and I'm very, and I'm all, get often anti, because I don't think you should pay, right? I think you should, you know, find a way to not pay for your MFA. But for me, I would probably do Microphone, the same. Julie. I would probably do the same thing. I probably would go and get an MFA because coming from the people that I came from, I needed that. I needed that external permission to to take myself seriously. And even though I don't necessar necessarily feel like I learned a lot about craft in my MFA program. I needed someone. I mean, it could have been a mentor. It could have been, you know, I think what what troubles me about academia is that it is this elitist system where I was lucky enough to get into this program. And I wasn't born to be a writer. I wasn't meant, you know, I don't believe in that. I think that it's about work and, and, and need. So for me, it would be probably still getting an MFA or finding a community like Sacka Street or the other writing centers. Or, um, I mean, now with the internet, there's so many different ways to connect um, to people and, and publish, even though, yes, not getting paid, you know. Um, so I don't know. They're very young, though, the MFA programs. Harmony? Um, I probably would have done a BFA in dance instead of an MFA because writing, especially poetry, is a more natural thing, and I find that that was a big sacrifice I made, choosing between professionalizing writing and doing something that is more temporal. And I might have found nonfiction. I might have done my MFA in nonfiction because, again, my training in poetry came by resisting some of the stuff I was taught in the MFA. So, yeah. I kind of like my life. I would, I would, I would do the same thing. Um, but again, I I wrote for several several years, and it's just now wanting the professional cr accreditation that I decided. Oh, okay, I need the MFA. Basically, a few job, a few places reached out to me, wanted to hire me, 
not knowing I didn't have an MFA, found out I didn't have an MFA, and were like, oh, sorry, you have to have this thing. The third time it happened, I was like, oh, well, let me go get that thing um, <laughs> so this doesn't happen again. Question. I, I hire instructors who don't have MFAs. I just want to say that. I do. Audience, you had a question. So I am wondering about a guild that acts as a union where minimums um, for journalists, you know, for freelancers, for book advances um, could exist in the way that the Writers Guild exists for screenwriters um, so that you are guaranteed a reasonable minimum for work that you do and why you don't have this I know you have to assume about making this season. Yeah, well, I, you know, it's been talked about endlessly, and there are, you know, newspapers are unionized generally. A few magazines, um, actually, as far as I know, The Village Voice was the only mm-hmm. big magazine mm-hmm. that was ever unionized. I don't think it's a model that works for writers. Um, I wish there were a some other model that would help people, but you're talking about it, it's not a um, unions work when you have a sort of consistent type of work, consistency in the companies and conditions, and writing is it's just there isn't that uniformity and I think that it would be really difficult to apply that model. Um I, I oh, Harry, yes. um, Manjula? So I think an interesting thing about unions is that I guess I'm like really into, into institutions right now because I'm freaked out about our government. But um so my partner is actually a union organizer in the service sector, not in uh, creative sectors um, and I think there's some truth to what you're saying Susan but I think something that he's always pointing out to me that I think is a really valuable thing is that unions are made up of people um, and unions policy is shaped by its members um, and there actually are several organizations that um, if people wanted to like join them in mass and then take them over um, that could be done <laughs> I, I agree that like creating some sort of like standard I don't know how that would happen, but I do think that there are a lot of other sort of like job standards that could be enforced perhaps through collective action. Um, I think also there's like some legal hitches because like technically freelance or it's illegal for freelancers to organize technically. Um, Just technically, you can do it. Um, But um, uh, so yeah, I would say, you know, there are some pre-existing organizations um, that I bet would be really eager to have a lot of new members, such as the NWU, the National Writers Union, which right now, like, is sort of more of a club. I don't really, I don't know them that well, but, like, they are happy to have new members, and they will listen to you if you join. So, like, get a bunch of your friends together and take over a union. Do it. Well, and there are, I mean, uh, the Authors Guild certainly doesn't provide, yeah, I mean, they do provide services, but I, I'm, optimistic about a lot of things but that is not one thing that I'm optimistic about I just I don't I think that the it's just too too complex and non-uniform and a business um, to to work in that kind of model we have time for one yes 
So this zooms it back out maybe to the topic of the book and also follows on to that question. In a marketplace, and I'll reference Uber, where, where people are just doing it to support themselves, you all know what I'm talking about, but in a marketplace where you have an infinite number of actors who are driven by an imperative that is creative or expressive, it isn't just about feeding themselves and getting to the end of the, of the run, can we ever solve this problem? I mean, um, will we ever find a way to achieve pay when you have Theoretically, an infinite number of people. Well, and right. And would like to find some way to get. Well, I mean, if you think about it, you say I won't work for that amount of money, but someone else will say, "Oh my God, I'm dying to write, and I will do it for." You know, a lot of people don't wake up saying, "I really, really want to work on a factory line." (laughs) Um, They're doing it because it's a way of making a living. That's why I think. You know, it, it would be like saying, I think um, artists should, you know, you know, visual artists should unionize when you think, but I, I don't want to be in the union. I just, if, one, if I sell one painting in 30 years, I will be incredibly happy. Otherwise, I'm happy to just do it for free and let people see my work. You know, I mean, we're our own worst enemy in that regard, but I also feel like well, that's the way it should be. I mean, this is not a, it, it's a profession, but it, it, it's a unique profession, which is that it's also people's aspiration and dream. Um, and that's a very different thing from working on uh, an assembly line. And, you know, there will always be someone who wants to do this because it's the, the human impulse to to tell stories. I mean, for me, and I guess I am, I feel like I'm that person that's ruining the business because I'm not, because I'm not, you know, I mean, I've learned so much tonight and I'm going to be so much more aggressive. You better be. (laughs) But um, I think that for me, you know, I don't know if I would call it a problem, right? I mean, I'm also a, a, a teacher first, like my identity is as a teacher of writing. That's how I feel the most comfortable. That's how I feel the most comfortable talking about writing. You know, that's my life's work is teaching of writing. So when I look at it as a teacher of writing, you know, success is such a, has infinite definition. Well, we're talking about money specifically. Money, you're right. Money. Money. I mean, I think that. <laughs> I think I think that there's a difference between for fiction writers especially, right? There's a difference between writing and publishing. And then there's, you know, the money part. But um I mean it takes some people 10 years to write a novel, and if you're thinking that whole time as you're writing it, you know, god, I really need to get a million dollar book deal. Um it's going to affect everything so for me what I the advice that I give students is you write and you write as a fiction writer and especially a novelist and then you know once you send that book out to agents it becomes a a completely different thing right it's a product you know and if you want to be published by a major publisher then you have to really think about you know your your audience marketability you know that so 
I don't know. For me, sometimes I think there has to be a separation between the two, um, just emotionally and psychologically during the process of writing. Um, Manjuli, you want to take us out? Sure. Um, I and remind the folks to buy the book. I think those are both really good points. One way you can solve it is by buying Scratch. <laughs> right? No. Um, um, uh, I guess uh, short answer is I don't know if it's solvable. It's definitely we can make it better. Um, slightly longer answer is I think that both of you guys are saying something that I think is very true, which is like perhaps uh, creative art work should not be held to a profit model or a profit motive. Perhaps it shouldn't be something that we have to rely on. Um, but I think that uh, the problem that you come up against with that is that if, if you're not a person who has access to that to, to a poorly paid writing career, or if you're a person who maybe doesn't come from money, or maybe you have other stuff going on in your life that prevents that, um, maybe you suffer from other types of oppression, like, the problem is that like, if people don't have access to the ability to, to the means to do their creative work, um, then the stories that we are receiving as a culture are not the full story. Um, so I think maybe the larger question is, like, can we figure out a way to create a world in which people are able to make a living and live comfortably and have the types of benefits and services they need? And then whoever wants to make art can fucking make art because everyone has their rent paid. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.